Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Law College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler. And today I have an amazing conversation to share with you. This time I had the opportunity to speak with the very talented Jennifer Shahadi. Jennifer is an author, a two times US women's chess champion. She's a grandmaster. She is a poker professional. She's the director at the U.S. Chess Women's Organization, uh, and she also has a couple of podcasts, one called The Poker Grid, the other called Ladies' Night, and she does uh, so much uh, in this space between chess, poker, uh, organizing events, trainings, um, and getting people involved with chess, specifically young women. Uh, I think the work that she's doing is really amazing. Uh, this is actually the third chess grandmaster that I've interviewed recently. Uh, the reason being is that I've developed a huge interest in chess as a game for all people. I think it teaches uh, a way of thinking um, and how to think, which uh, especially in the modern world, I think could be much more valuable than, you know, just facts or random information. I think, it, uh, you know, the game goes hand in hand with the idea and spirit of this podcast, which is uh, really gaining access to knowledge uh, with a low barrier of entry, which I think chess certainly accomplishes. And, uh, you know, we talk about all that again and more with Jennifer in this conversation. Um and for that reason, I think you're going to love it. So please, without further delay, enjoy this episode with Jennifer Shahadi. Hey, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I'm really excited. Knowledge without college. Let's do it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, for the audience out there who maybe is not familiar with your work just yet, would you mind telling them about you know, what it is that you do and you know, how you got to this point? Yeah, well, I am a chess champion and author, and now I'm also a poker player for Poker Stars, and I am the Women's Program Director of U.S. Chess. So I actually do a lot of things. Like, my career is pretty diverse. I do commentary for major chess events. I play poker tournaments. I do chess exhibitions, especially when it's particularly diverse when there's no pandemic. Now it's a little bit more um, concentrated on like speaking and commentary and, you know, motivational lectures and writing. Um, while under normal circumstances, I'm kind of doing all of those things, but also traveling around. Another common thread that kind of ties everything that I do together is I'm very focused on female empowerment, particularly in chess um, for all ages, for girls to women, um, because it's one of those careers that girls and women are outnumbered in. And I personally believe that when you have a big gender imbalance in a field, it's actually bad for the field itself. It's not just bad for girls or women. It's kind of like bad for everyone. Um, so that's why when I see a world like that, I'm like, oh, well, what, what can we do to like maybe draw more balance into this world? 
Yeah, certainly. And uh, I think it's, you know, pretty amazing what you've done uh, in your time, because uh, and I'd like to hear from your perspective as far as like, what was the playing field like, you know, when you first got into chess and what was it like, uh, you know, growing up sort of diving into these games, which, you know, like you've described, they are you know, heavily male dominated. Like, what, what, what has that journey been like? I think it's gotten a lot more balanced, partly because of work of people like me and other organizers and role models. But I, I remember when I was a kid, there were some girls when I started playing chess as a little kid, maybe seven, eight, nine. Um, and then they kind of disappeared around junior high. And I do have this memory that b- before that, one of the fun things in chess was I would play these games and then afterwards, you know, every once in a while we would go to a like a tournament out of town and the girls would stay in hotel rooms together and you know we would with we would uh you know eat junk food and like discuss our games in between the rounds and suddenly like those girls all disappeared and I was the only one and that was not as much fun like I was getting better but it wasn't as much fun so I kind of stopped for a little while because of that and I came back to it but the large majority of people, once they stop, they don't come back. It's just, there's too many other things to do. So yeah. And, and why, you know, why is that a problem per se? It's not always a problem. I mean, more than a lot of chess players, I'm very, I'm very balanced about that. Like I don't see quitting or moving on to another field as, you know, an obvious negative. Um, but a lot, a lot of times it is a negative. It's like chess still had a lot more to teach someone and they just kind of moved on because of some kind of negative emotional experience. I think that's when it kind of hurts me to hear that somebody stopped something, not because it was intellectually time to move on, but because something external happened that made them want to leave. Absolutely. And, and, you know, like what's drawn me into, you know, the game of chess overall is just how many applications you can find uh, just in any given game, the number of situations and sort of uh, uh, the situations you'll find yourself in can oftentimes relate to a, you know, you can use as a metaphor for a situation in life and just getting through whether it's business or, um, you know, any real challenges that you're having, you can use a sort of like the way of thinking you gain from chess uh, in approaching those things. And so I find it to be like a practical, uh, way of thinking for life in general. And so it's interesting to me to see such a great divide between, you know, you'd think for, um, for a game like this, that there would be a much more balanced, uh, you know, let's say player base of people that are, that are, uh, you know, actively involved in it. So when seeing sort of the numbers between how many men and women are involved in the game is quite staggering because you wouldn't expect that to be the case for something that could be universally applicable for anybody's lives. Um, I'm curious, like sort of uh, where, you know, like where have you seen the, you know, you mentioned that there's been drop off and people, they get into the game and then they get out of it. Um, you know, is there anything more to that that you think could be causing that or the root of that? Yeah. Sometimes like just loneliness, potentially harassment, but, um, you know, the normal, the normal kind of reasons that a woman might feel like less comfortable. So it's like a self-perpetuating poly- um, prophecy when something is like, doesn't have a lot of girls and women and fewer girls and women are attracted to it. I, I agree with you though, that chess has a lot of great life lessons to teach. You know, I just finished writing an article for the Washington post about this and not really about life lessons, more about like myths of chess players. And I think one of my favorite ones is 
the idea that chess players, they actually think sideways more than they think straight ahead. And I love that because I think it's such a great life lesson. And what I mean from that in a chess perspective is that a lot of people ask like, oh, how many moves do you see ahead? And they think you're going to say some prodigious number like 15 or 25. And mm -hmm. while, of course, occasionally that's true, much more typically, um, chess players are only thinking a few moves ahead, but there's like a thicket because every move that you see, your opponent has multiple replies. And usually it's about missing one of those branches that are kind of right in front of you, not about missing something at the end of a long, long, long branch, which is, you know, important in life too, because I think it's really applicable that a lot of times people are thinking, you know, like a, like a 10 year plan or a five year plan, whereas, okay, maybe there's like some decision that's like right in front of their face that they can make to improve um, their situation. So yeah, I, I, I like that about chess a lot. Yeah, for sure. I, I had a similar, uh, I spoke about this with uh, Maurice Ashley a few weeks ago. And, you know, we talked about how, how much you can learn adaptability from the game, because as much as you want to believe in, you know, seeing 10, 15 moves ahead, oftentimes it's something that you don't expect that requires you to, you know, change your footing, change your position and do things um, that maybe you weren't planning on, but adjusting your plan accordingly. So totally, I think that's a, an interesting way to look at it, thinking sideways rather than just thinking uh, forward. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so, there's also there's yeah. so many other life lessons from chess, but I mean, I think one of them is, you know, the importance of focus and concentration. I mean, that's a huge one. It's kind of like the most um, obvious one in some ways, because when you see a chess player, um, you, you, you're, if you're not used to thinking super hard about things, you're just like immediately like, whoa, like that person is thinking really hard about whatever is in front of them. And yeah, that's a kind of unusual experience that, I think if you teach it to kids, helps them kind of recognize that in other phases of their life. How, how was your, how did you learn focus and concentration to that level? Because I mean, not only in, you know, chess, I feel like poker is a, you know, similar situation where you need, you know, an equal amount of, uh, you know, that focus and concentration. What was it for you that sort of like gave you that exposure? Actually, well, I think I learned it from chess because I wanted to get better. And then it was like this wonderful escape. So I just kind of like looked at chess and in order to get better, you have to learn how to focus. So that's an easy way to force yourself to be focused. Although, you know, I feel like I've always had a pretty high capacity for deep focus. Um, and I think that is one thing I have going for me cognitively uh, because I've never been like the sharpest person or the quickest but I have a capacity for focus, which is really important in chess. Um, Gary Kasparov once said, it's the most important thing. Um, it, although it's always hard to tell, like when you have the greatest chess player of all time telling you what's the most important thing, it's, it's always a little tricky because of course their brain is quite unusual, right? So ex exceptional and, and therefore, you know, it might be applicable to them, but not to everyone. But I, I think there is a lot of truth in that because if you are a person of an average intelligence who's using 100% of your intelligence on one thing, then guess what? That's a lot better than somebody who's super intelligent and completely distracted. And so that is like the, the superpower that like chess teaches you that a lot of people seem to get from meditation as well. Um, but chess is like meditation in reverse in a way that you're not emptying your brain. You're controlling your thoughts to think about just one thing. And 
uh, yeah, I think that's, that's empowering for people to know that, of course, people have different aptitudes and talents for different things, but the most important variable is like the effort. Meditation in reverse. I've not uh, uh, ever thought of that before. Is that, could you dive deeper into that and explain sort of like where you see or how you see, you know, like the focus on one thing compares how that differs from how most people think about meditation? Well, to be fair, I haven't done a ton of meditation. I did some, especially when I was pregnant. I really liked it when I was pregnant. When I did meditation, when I was pregnant, I loved it. But to be fair, that's a little different because when you're pregnant, there's always so much going on. It's not just you. Like there's another person like inside of you. Right. And because this was, I think like second or third trimester. So I was already like able to like feel um, the baby. And at, at that time, it was just like so wonderful to like connect with that other being and meditation was like the greatest thing ever for me. But I, I recognize now that that is quite unusual and I haven't been able to take to it as easily without being pregnant. <laughs> Cause it's just me, come on, yeah. that's it. I'm, I'm just stuck with myself. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but anyway, I, I, uh, I felt like when I was doing that, it was really just connecting with like your breath connecting with your, your heart and your breath and all that, just like the, the things that you can sometimes take for granted. Whereas in chess, you're not connecting with any of that stuff consciously. In fact, you're actually just thinking as hard as possible about one very specific thing. But in both cases, everything else is shut out, right? Totally. Yeah, and I'm sure people sure. who are actually experts in meditation probably don't think of it as that much of a surprise because it's not really about thinking about nothing. I'm sure to some people it's about controlling your thoughts. And in this case, of course, a chess player could be good at that without having a lot of traditional meditation practice, maybe just because they like me and me as a kid, like I wanted to get good at chess. So I kind of had to focus and shut everything out. But that's actually really difficult for people who don't have that like specific goal, right? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, um, you know, uh, in reading a little bit about your background, there was, uh, you know, it seems like you have quite a competitive family. And I'm curious how much, you know, your family played into your, you know, sort of interest in growing uh, sort of, uh, you know, involvement in the chess and poker world. Well, yeah, they're all great at at chess and poker. Um, and my mom was really good at bridge also and Scrabble. Although, yeah, my dad and my brother are chess masters. My brother's actually an international master. So that played a huge role. I'd say the biggest role that plays is it's like a support network. So I said earlier that I stopped playing chess as seriously for a couple of years, but it was easier to dive back into it when you have a chess family. And that's true for so many fields, you know, what your parent do is like really significant in your family does and what they're good at is so significant because you have all of those connections and that network that is so incredibly powerful. And it makes you sad when you think about the fact that, well, it's sad and happy. It, the sad part is that like, it's very, very difficult to approximate that network with institutions. Uh, and sometimes it happens and we can try, but it's hard, you know, school and, um, you know, extended family can do a really good job of 
of like still being a network and a way to provide opportunities. But gosh, the family is like the easiest one because it's just always there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. It's always going to be, you know, should be in close proximity, usually always mm -hmm. there, you know, extended family, you may come and go schools, you know, you graduate, it's, it's sort of that, uh, that baseline, you know, network. And, you know, what I find so interesting about what you do and what anybody does, who's bringing, you know, trying to get more people involved in the game is not just the short term, like today interest, but it's more so like what kind of impact could that have, you know, in 20 years when they're raising a family, if they're deeply involved in something like this and it's, you know, they're sort of planting those seeds for, uh, you know, for a potential support network down the road. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there were some things that I wish I got into when I was a kid and my family wasn't really into. So it's just like everybody has things that their family does that, um, you know, gives them more insight. And sometimes you don't even realize it until later. So I, yeah, I'd love to see, I guess, a little bit more, you know, conscious um, trading, I guess, or like people trying to instill the things that they're good into their network beyond just their, um, their immediate family. Totally. Totally. I, I think uh, our conversation today is happening at a pretty unique time. And as far as uh chess interest goes, because, you know, there's, I saw you had some writings on uh, the new Netflix show, the Queens Gambit that just came out. I'm curious what your thoughts are on the show and, and sort of like the, the spike in interest in chess. Oh, it's great. I mean, come on. I can't, can't complain. <laughs> It's wonderful to see so many people interested in chess and to see the the glamorous, beautiful side of it, like the the travel and the the gorgeous chess sets and you know the 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 thrill of winning and the um, deep focus that is almost more pleasurable than the win itself. Yeah, I'm I'm happy and I, the fact that it's getting more girls and women interested, although honestly. It's getting boys and men interested too, um, sure. especially men. I think though, the thing is that it's like, it's closer to 50-50, I guess, at least. Whereas, you know, chess is usually so um, attractive to um, to men that even like a balance of people who are interested in the Queen's Gambit kind of like is quite shocking and awesome. Uh, yeah, and I'm doing a lot more women's initiatives now on the heels of it. So with my work with US Chess, we started a mad women's book club we read the Queen's Gambit, actually, the the novel that the series was based on. And we're reading my friend Maria Konnikova's book about thinking like Sherlock Holmes next. And then I'm also doing some like beginner's chess lessons for women. And I've done like a lot of interviews. Um, so people are really, journalists are really interested. And I think it just provides a really good thing for this time, you know, that people are spending a lot of time indoors the winter is coming, there's still a pandemic. And so it's kind of like a the perfect time to learn chess and kind of see the positive side of being stuck inside. Sure. And yeah, I mean, I can see people need, you know, like deep focus is a pretty unique thing in today's like sort of entertainment realm. You know, like you look around and I think of, 
I think a lot of the areas where people spend a lot of their time or attention, like on social media is usually, you know, for those clicks, it's usually a very short term sort of thing. It's, um, you know, that short term stimulus or boost or whatever, uh, compared to the experience that you get, you know, from, uh, doing something like, you know, diving deep into a book or deep into a game of chess where it's it's a much more deeply focused sort of activity, which I think for a lot of people is probably refreshing for their mind compared to the sort of shallow stimulus that we're used to. Absolutely. Um, I'm, it's, it's pretty cool also to see, uh, you know, these, uh, the increase in traffic that you're experiencing on your end with both uh, of those, uh, the beginner chess lessons, as well as the book club. Uh, what do you think is the, you know, do you see this as being sort of like something short-term or do you think this is something that could continuously, you know, sort of sprout into something bigger as time goes on? Well, I mean, actually I'm starting those because of the interest. My, but my other projects, like my podcasts, I have a podcast called ladies night um, and another one about poker called the poker grid and just my social media accounts. I'm just getting a big spike in interest in everything that I post on like Instagram and Twitter. And um, all, all everything I do basically seems to be getting more interest because of this like love and passion for chess. Will it be sustained? Um, I think that there will be a permanent bump. It obviously the growth can't continue forever. Sure. Because um, the, the, m- most people will have watched the series at some point and then like the ones who got addicted to chess because of it will be with us probably forever. Chess is a kind of like thing that when you're hooked, it's kind of like in the periphery of your interest for forever if it doesn't become a bigger passion. So that's awesome. And then some people will just, you know, forget about the show and chess, but they'll always have like a, a, maybe a slightly fonder place for it in their heart. So the next time it comes like up in mainstream media or they see it like at a hotel, they're still more likely maybe to gravitate towards it, even if it wasn't like, you know, a new life interest for them. So both of those things are great because, yeah, that's like the, the, the slight interest that kind of peaks whenever chess reappears or the more moderate interest where chess becomes a part of your life, even if not a big part. And then the extreme interest where you actually make chess a big part of your life. Um, if I had to break it down percentage wise, I'd say that, of course, like the first group is the most common, right? Like sure. that they just now have a more fondness for chess. Moderate interest is also a big chunk. And then the extreme interest is like the smallest sliver. But hey, those kids could be world champions in 15 years. Um, or, okay, mo- kids aren't really watching the show, but those people's kids, they're probably much more likely to teach them chess, Right. So if you're a mom or a dad and you have an eight-year-old, you saw the Queen's Gambit, the chances are, and you loved it, chances are you're going to teach that kid chess and maybe take them to some tournaments to kind of like have like a mommy son, you know, chess tournament. And like one of those kids is going to end up becoming like a world champion. I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. Yeah. From this, uh, from this spike that's occurring right now, it's, it only makes sense. Right. Someone um, and it is popular yeah. all over the world too. So it's not even just America. Like some kid somewhere is being exposed to chess because their parents saw that show. And in 15 years, we're going to be hearing about the kids and we're probably going to hear about the Queen's Gambit too. Like I think in 15 years, some of those champions, they're going to tell us about that story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it'll be interesting to think about that. I, I know this because, you know, there's a great poker movie called Rounders. Sure, of course. And a lot of people who watch, 
And, and I don't even think the round, I don't actually don't remember because I wasn't really a poker player back then, but I don't think the rounders effect was as extreme as the queen's gambit. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know if it was like quite as huge. Also, everybody's stuck at home now. So it's kind of like the perfect storm for there would be such interest in a series, which is seven hours as opposed to a two hour movie. Yeah. Um, but to this day, when people win poker tournaments, they sometimes mention seeing that movie and getting hooked totally. based Usually it's that or like the Chris Moneymaker win um, or some combination of the two. But, you know, this is 2020. So many years since those things happen and people still are talking about it because they were they were maybe, you know, very young when those things happen and that, you know, changed the direction of their life. And so, yeah, um, five, 10, 15 years, we're going to hear a lot of stories like that because of Queen's Gambit. I totally agree. You know, it's, you can never really understate the impact of some of these cultural, you know, phenomena, you know, like I know in the, like in the bodybuilding world, people well, nearly, I, I would guess 85% or more saw pumping iron at some point with, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger back in the day. And that completely inspired and changed their life to go in that direction. And something that most of the world probably overlooks, but for the few that, that really, you know, it really, you know, struck something for them. It can, like you said, completely changes the course of their life. Exactly. Exactly. And here in this case, it might be a lot of children's lives too, like parents teaching their kids. Cause yeah, most, most, uh, parents probably too busy to become like totally obsessed with chess. Right. And unlike some movies, you can't really watch this movie if you're really like young kids. So mm -hmm. yeah, I I'm interested though. And I I'm excited for it. I'm here for it. You're here for the, for the long run for the 20 years from now. I see I'm where it goes. Yeah. yeah. See, what, see what happens then. Yeah. What, what else excites you about this space in general? You know, it seems like you have a lot of energy and passion towards it and you do so much, uh, so many different outlets for, you know, whether it's the books or the, you know, these, uh, you know, tournaments and uh, trainings, like, like, what are you most excited for in this space? I like how the space is very diverse. People in it are different ages, different backgrounds, different genders, and that everybody can communicate within it. I guess that's probably my favorite thing, which isn't really shown in that series, by the way, The Queen's Gambit. It's a very narrow, you know, best the only woman, everyone else is white, everybody else except for that little boy in one of the episodes is probably between the ages of like 20 and 50, you know? So it's actually very narrow, the slice that you deal with in the series, but okay, there's Lushenko, who I guess was supposed to be like maybe 60s, I, I don't know. He didn't seem that old, though. Um, he, they kind of tried to make him feel old, but he didn't really seem super old. It felt mm -hmm. like a very, like, very narrow range of, like, you know, person they were showing in that series as a chess player. And, of course, it was a different time. So there's probably a lot more reality in it than there is now. But um, right now, even though there's not enough women, um, the amount of diversity otherwise I think is pretty staggering it's a really great game in in that respect and it's so inexpensive to play online to learn online to buy a chessboard so that point of entry is pretty good of course as we saw in the series and is quite true to get really good a lot of times there are expenses like traveling coaches computers books but um a lot of it is less expensive than other endeavors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can go on chess.com and get, you know, access to 
all sorts of training resources and so that's and play games for you know nothing uh and you know have access to just tons and tons of information uh which i think you know for as far as like the number of resources out there for any given thing like just definitely got a lot of it um and definitely widely accessible yeah yeah we're lucky it's like the st louis chess club has so many great resources i think part of it is because you know, chess is also in many ways sponsored as an art, but then it's also, sure. you know, appreciated as a sport because it's so fun to watch. So in the past, that's kind of put chess in a difficult position because it wasn't necessarily accepted as either. But now that there's a chess boom, I think it's actually like an asset because it seems like it's just kind of taking like the good of everything. Like the sporting element makes it super popular on Twitch and YouTube, but the philanthropic app part of it allows it to be more diverse because there's support for programs for um, at-risk youth and for women and girls. Um, so mm-hmm. it just, it kind of takes all these different elements, I think, that um, that help a lot for its popularity and its diversity. For sure. I mean, it's, you know, it's universal. It's, you know, it's a, it's a timeless game. So, I mean, it's sort of, uh, sort of ripe for the picking for really anybody to dive in. Yeah. I mean, now I'm a little worried because of like, just in general, I worry about education right now because of the pandemic and the fact that people are all moving online for education, which is fantastic for some people, for people who are a little shy. I mean, I love doing online chess seminars and online poker seminars. I think it's so fun because there's so many things that would normally take me forever to do that I can do in a click of a button. Like, not having to mess with like, you know, the projector and like all this stuff that's just so seamless, polling people. I, I love it, but it's not for everyone from these from the student point of view. Some people get tired from looking at the screen for a while. And even more importantly, there are some people who don't have the internet bandwidth, the number of devices per household, um, the support to navigate all the privacy controls that some schools and places put in for you to access whatever you need to access to get into the room to learn. So I, yeah, I, I worry about that, that it's great for some people, but that some people are getting left behind and that because this is so new, we're not doing enough about it. I mean, I agree with you. I think personally, like we had a huge education problem before the pandemic, as far as like, you know, what it is that students are concentrating on and and how they go about their day and like what makes sense for them to actually learn most effectively. And so, you know, you throw this new spin on it where people are, you know, basically forced to, uh, you know, have more of the overall sensory experience taken away, you know, you're, I, I think for most kids staring at a screen is not a natural by no stretch of the imagination is it a natural way to learn. Um, and it's something that, you know, while it can work for some people really well, uh, I can't imagine it works as well for most people. Um, you know, especially, you know, just kids in general need socialization, need, um, you know, need to be around people. So to only have sort of that digital connection, I think, uh, takes away from a lot of the experience of going to school in general. Um, so what, another thing that, you know, sort of like really drives my uh, passion and interest talking to people like yourself who are spreading chess as a game to people and really getting more people involved there is I think it actually is much more empowering than people might um, think of because I don't think of it as just as a game. It's so, as much as, uh, you know, you're learning a way of thinking and a way of looking at the world, uh, which I think in some degrees could be uh, more effective uh, for kids than 
you know, what facts, dates or places or, you know, things they may be learning, if they can learn how to think they may be better off uh, than, you know, sort of those, you know, uh, light pieces of information that they're accumulating otherwise. Yeah, totally agree. And, and because it's so abstract and doesn't require a lot of prior knowledge to get started in chess, I, I think the cool thing about it is you can get to a high level and, and a friend of mine who's, um, you know, an incredible chess coach, she was featured in the documentary Brooklyn Castle, Elizabeth Spiegel made this point and I really liked it. She talked about how young children can get to a, a level at chess where they study a certain level of chess that's several grades higher than other subjects, just because of the nature of chess that, you know, you can teach a third grader things that, you know, they would normally in other comparable subjects like math or English, they'd have to wait till later to learn just because of all the building blocks that led up to it. And so, yeah, chess, chess is also hard and, you know, learning a hard thing is a great model for a young person who's going to have to learn harder things later to be successful. For sure. And I also, you know, recognize that in chess, you're doing, you're usually doing something to learn, you know, like when you're, you learn from your failures of, you know, you know, losing the game and, you know, seeing different positions that you could have, uh, you know, done handled differently, um, as opposed to a lot of sort of the academic way of learning today is, you know, just collecting facts rather than using those and knowing how that actually works in your physical world. So that in itself, I can imagine would definitely play into how you can sort of jump ahead multiple levels is because you're actively engaged in implementing that knowledge in real time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, with your own, uh, you know, I heard, you know, before we start here, it sounds like you have a couple little ones or, uh, a child of your own uh, running around. What, what do you see as, uh, you know, and I think this sort of plays into the education in general. Like, where, where do you see, uh, you know, what, what would your preference be for, you know, education and, and also in this world today? And, you know, what do you see for their uh, future of chess? Uh? Well, I, he's four, almost. He's almost four. And um, awesome. yeah, he's, he's supposed to be taking a nap, actually. <laughs> uh, he doesn't want to, though. <laughs> but uh <laughs> i only have one though but he's got some pipes on him he likes to scream sometimes when he doesn't want to take a nap but yeah. he probably hears me talking about him now but uh right now you mean with respect to the pandemic or just like more generally education uh, i'd say like you know right now in respect to the pandemic i mean four years old sounds like you know it's it's sort of just on the cusp of uh you know going into what would be regular schooling, like kindergarten and all that sort of stuff, um, as opposed to, and then, you know, just in general, you know, what was your philosophy there? Well, I feel in a way lucky. Like, I think it would be really sad for, I feel bad for parents who have kindergartners right now. And, you know, they have to do like hybrid schooling or some of them don't get to send their kids to school right away in the fall. Um, for, for, for a couple of reasons, both economic, like that could be devastating for a lot of women in the, this country. I read that there's a lot of women who are like leaving their um, jobs because it's just not tenable with this childcare burden that they're facing. And, you know, for some people who are lucky enough to have childcare and have some flexible work from home, maybe it's even a bit of a blessing that they get to spend more time with their kids. I certainly felt a bit of that especially in the beginning of the pandemic, because usually I travel so much, getting to spend time with my son was almost like a blessing, but I recognize that that's a great privilege and not really the experience of everyone in America um, where it has been quite a struggle. 
Um, so yeah, I, I, um, I just can't wait for things to return to normal and kids to be able to go to school again. And you're right. I think four in a way is a bit lucky though, because it's not like I got free, um, childcare anyway. Like my kid can't go to school yet, public school. So anything that I was going to have to do education wise at this age, I was going to have to pay for. So, um, in a way it's less of a punishment for me than it is for people whose kids are supposed to be going to public school. And unfortunately they can't. So they have mm -hmm. to maybe pay out of pocket because, you know, what else can you do? So that's an unexpected expense or they have to leave their job. And that could have some horrible ripple effects into the future economy, you know, mm -hmm. taking yourself out of the workforce to take care of children sometimes makes sense in the short term because of the financials, but then long-term getting back in can be a real struggle, right? And this is something that, you know, I haven't studied deeply, but I, you know, I know is a phenomenon. And, um, but in this particular incarnation of it, we've never seen it. So what's gonna happen at the end? I, I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I'm, I'm also, you know, uh, excited for things to go back to normal, but I wonder, you know, what that will even look like. You know, it's, will, will it will it return to a sort of uh, 2019 way of living? Probably not. You know, there'll probably be some adaptations that we make and hopefully for the number of people that are affected by this and number of people that have had to adjust their sort of career orientation due to uh, issues caused by this, hopefully that number is great enough that people are sort of, you know, it's, something that people understand is the circumstance that occurred and happened to a lot of people. So maybe that reintegration into, you know, their career isn't as uh, rough as maybe it would be otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I think that there, I think that for chess, at least there's going to be more of a hybrid forever now because it, chess is just so well suited to online. I mm -hmm. think that, you know, it, it will, it will forever have more elements of the online learning atmosphere now that we've learned how to do it properly. Um, because just the fact that you can get for me, for instance, as the women's program director at us chess, I will never go back to not doing any zoom stuff mm -hmm. never, because there's third certain things that you can do with online seminars that you can't do live. Like for instance, teenage girls, um, very busy scattered all over the country at different rating levels and different ages and different States. Um, you know, bringing them all together in a live event is very logistically difficult um so they can lose interest in chess because they don't feel like they're they have their you know their their friends or people that are similar to them whereas like if we meet up online then we can you know maintain that community so like logistically it's just it's just fantastic and i'm sure i'm going to keep doing that the frequency might change though frequency yeah. might go down but i will definitely continue and I think a lot of chess players and organizers kind of feel the same. Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, it sounds like there's definitely some gains of having the online community. Um, some of the things that you see like across the board with online communities that, you know, like you said, you don't have that logistical hurdle. A Zoom link is a lot easier than plane tickets, hotels, and, you know, whatever else might be needed to sort of organize a large event. Um, but what are, what do you think is lost in that? Uh, you know, in the online way of learning and not having people in person or having those, you know, maybe those in-person connections with uh, the people that you're playing with. Well, yeah, sure. Plenty is definitely lost. I mean, I miss people. I miss like, you know, the kids and I'm sure they miss 
you know, actually running around with each other, the freedom. I'm for, I mean, I, I think that from the child point of view, the hardest thing might must be the fact that they're always around their parents now. Mm. Like chess tournaments must be fun. Like I remember when I was a kid, but I, I don't remember from like when I was like really, really little. But I do remember there's like that sense of independence because you're just like playing your game and then you're running around with your friends and kind of like discussing chess and playing blitz. Whereas now, like, sure, they can have like some interaction that's kind of private in their computer. But, you know, there are a lot of parents who want to have some monitoring because for good reason. Right. So I guess it depends on, on for kid to kid how much privacy there is and also depends on the platform. Right. Um, so that must be hard for teens, especially just being around your parents all the time. Like that must be really tough. And I'm sure that's what they're like kind of excited for to get back into a, a balance. Cause that's so much about being a teen. Isn't it about like that transition from being a child to an adult, right? It's that transitional period. And if you're now at home all the time and not able to kind of like explore it, must be very frustrating. Yeah. I mean, you, you kind of have to carve your own personality out of the feedback yeah. that you get from the outside world. So, you know, sort of being in an echo chamber with your parents, I'm sure is probably a challenge for many. Yeah. And I'm sure they're getting a lot of that communication on online and social media, but, you know, especially if it's monitored, that's not the same. And then it's also not the same because it's less personal. And, you know, there, I think that you know, when I was a teenager, there was a lot of cruelty, especially around the ages of 12 and 13, especially like online or anonymously. So that seems like it would be a particularly torturous age to be living through the pandemic, because I think people are always a little nicer in person. And that's true for grownups. And it's probably true for teens as well. Definitely. So the fact that everybody's stuck online, um, I don't know, that just sounds that sounds, sounds like a really tough age, you know, on the other hand, maybe it's 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 good in a way for kids who are getting bullied that they're not they're not able to get bullied in person. But I don't know. It sounds like a dangerous age. And so I, I'm sad about that as well. Kindergarten and junior high, not not good ages right now to not being able to go to school. Although, I mean, I think it depends on where you live. Like a lot of schools are like fully operating right now. Right. Yeah. It depends on your on the coronavirus case rates and stuff. And uh, I'm just not really following it that closely, to be honest, because because of our circumstances, we're pretty cautious because mm -hmm. we can work from home and we can do everything we need from home. So we, we don't really have as soon as we decided not to send our son to daycare this year, which was kind of a tough decision. We didn't really have to monitor it that closely. But um, yeah. Well, fortunately, I mean, at least with, you know, how accessible chess is online, I, I could see that giving people more of a constructive activity to do rather than mindlessly scrolling their, you know, social media feed. Um, have you gotten or, you know, have you had any feedback similar to that from the people that you work with? Oh, yeah, definitely. They, I mean, chess is, is, is a great kind of like break from that kind of mindless activity. I mean, it's great for everyone, I think, you know, adults, kids. Uh, but, you know, it can also become an addiction in itself. So I think it is important to monitor it. I think no matter what you do, growth is key. Even social media. I mean, social media can be attacked like a creative pursuit too. But I think the thing is when you're passive and you're not like actively trying to craft something better than what, what was there before, that that's hard. 
And, and okay, everybody needs their time just to release. Like you don't have to be growing all the time, 24 seven. But the problem is if like that downtime ends up kind of encapsulating like your goals and like the normal growth that you need to continue succeeding in life, right? And so for some people, chess, they don't want to improve. Is there anything wrong with that? No, not really. It just might mean that you're going to have a harder time getting enjoyment from chess. So that's what's wrong with it. But if you enjoy just playing once in a while and not getting any better because you just like the feel of the pieces or, you know, it's a stress reliever, there's nothing wrong with that. And, but I think that's a philosophy that's very hard for people, you know, uh, they, they feel like you constantly have to be improving at everything at once. And, and that's quite difficult to do. You kind of have to pick and choose. Where do you think that, you know, that way of thinking comes from? For that pressure capitalism america <laughs> yeah i mean not that i'm an not that i'm a anti-capitalist i'm not but i do think that it unchecked it has like some issues and one of them is that there's this like power law where there's an inordinate amount of attention given to the the people who are you know number one and you know things kind of like just kind of filter up to like the highest and that's where we see this massive wealth disparity. And you also see that I think in, you know, social media, like the biggest accounts get the, by far the most attention. And it's like, you know, that kind of just feeds into each into itself. So it feeds itself. Um, so that if you don't have anything countering that, it gets worse and worse every, every year. Like bezels would just get richer and richer and richer if there's no way to like kind of counter it. And yeah, so, for sure. You know, yeah. It's interesting because it's like the thing that the machine that churns that, uh, you know, gives people the opportunity to, you know, sort of, uh, you know, outperform the largest in the field, whether that's on the entertainment realm or, uh, you know, like in business with like Amazon, Jeff Bezos, like, you know, like the internet was like a new thing that gave people who probably wouldn't have, would would have just been nobody, uh, gave them an opportunity to, you know, dramatically, uh, you know, alter everything. And now they're like sort of the ones in that place. Like you can see on YouTube when that was first, you know, brand new, there was many people who were, you know, many of the creators, you look at someone like PewDiePie or something, you know, someone who just made videos every single day uh, becomes, you know, gets millions and millions of subscribers more so than what the major cable news, you know, or cable networks were getting in viewers every single day. And sort of gives them the opportunity to uh, sort of, you know, knock off that, uh, you know, that major institution, but then they become, like you said, you know, sort of they're, they're then propped to the top for sort of like this next phase of time. So it's kind of interesting to see how that back and forth occurs where, you know, uh, it takes sort of the changing of the technology and the improvement of society to give those opportunities to happen, but that still ends up in a similar situation where some people end up on top. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I mean, that's normal. People work harder, they're going to end up on top. But the problem is when it's like, irreversible, and there's like, kind of like exploitation. And I think that, uh, yeah, it's just, you know, something always important to kind of like check and think about and think about your values. And, you know, it's so easy to criticize. But then of course, it's so easy to buy things on Amazon and get it really quickly. So you actually have to like do research and figure out like, if you care so much about this, like, are you actually going to buy from other places and like do the research and wait the extra day or whatever it takes? 
Yeah. I mean, especially today, right. With the pandemic, like you want to go help that mom and pop shop, but, uh, you know, Amazon's the only place open, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it is possible to do research to find things. You just to do more planning. And I think that just, uh, that's just about like aligning what you actually buy and do with your values. Um, and just, you know, trying to plan ahead. Uh, and yeah, something we all have more time to think about all these things now. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, tell me what, what do you have on the horizon that you're, uh, you know, most excited about, you know, maybe in your own, you know, you have so many initiatives going on, you get the podcast, the books, all the, uh, events, like was sort of, uh, on your horizon that, that you're most excited about. I like all my, my work that I'm doing with the women's program. I'm having so much fun with the girls and then with the women also, um, you know, the, the girls classes, I, I actually got Gary Kasparov to give us a talk the other day. Wow. Yeah. He, he talked about his work on the queen's gambit. We do workshops with girls from Kenya, which is always really fun because, you know, we learn about another, another culture while we also connect through chess. That's with the girls in the U S and the girls in Kenya. Um, and that's incredible. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's awesome. They've taught us how, how the chess pieces are in Swahili and it's really fun. And we play blitz tournaments together. Um, and the mad woman's book club, which is something that anyone who's listening to this can get involved with where we read a book and then we talk about both the book, but also like any kind of chess themes that are inherent to the book. And then I give a little chess lesson. So uh, the last month we read The Queen's Gambit and this month we're reading Mastermind by Maria Konnikova. Uh, and we have associated adult female beginners classes. So I'm excited about that. Just kind of introducing more people who are hungry to learn because of The Queen's Gambit into like this crazy world of chess. And outside my work with the women's program, I'm excited to get back into my other podcast, The Poker Grid, which won a really big award this year as like the best um, poker podcast in the world. We won like a global poker award. And- Oh, it, congratulations. Yeah, it's really, it's really exciting because um, there's so many great poker podcasts, but ours was very, is very unique in that it's called The Grid because we're trying to um, interview a different person for every single possible hand in the poker grid. So there's 169 possible hands and no limit hold them. And we're kind of going through each one. It's difficult. It's kind of like a math problem and a podcast at the same time. And that's like very me. Like I'm always trying to merge the creative and the visual with the analytical. Sure. So yeah, that is a, a very fun project that in, for the last few weeks, I've been a little busy with chess stuff because of the queen's gambit. And then the U S championships that the St. Louis chess club ran. Um, and I was commentating actually with, uh, your previous guest, Maurice Ashley. Oh, incredible. And yeah. And uh, Yasser Saran. So we all work together. Uh, but, uh, I'm excited to kind of jump back into that as well. Yeah. It's really, uh, I know we, we haven't touched much on the poker, but I'm curious, how do you pick the guest for each hand? How do you do, how do you make that determination? Well, you know, I started very early. As soon as I came up with a concept, I created a spreadsheet and I put a different, I started asking my friends and, you know, great players, like which hand they wanted to cover. So it didn't really matter what order. I just wanted to make sure I didn't have the same person for the same hand. 
And so, yeah. And then I just kind of go through and find out who's available right now. It's like a golden time for getting people because people have much more availability than usual because nobody's traveling much. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I like, for instance, Gary Kasparov's schedule is usually incredibly crazy and it would be really hard to get him for something like a zoom, but, um, because of the pandemic, it kind of opens up some opportunities to connect with people that it would be harder to other times. So I definitely encourage people to think of that, you know, as I know this podcast is about knowledge without college and, you know, what you can do for no, for, for free, you know, and this is, this is a time of many challenges, but also many opportunities because people are home so much. Yeah. And I think, you know, we've gone through some of the ups and downs of what this, you know, sort of pandemic and all the current situation, you know, what it gives us the opportunities that we have. And uh, yeah, I think it really, and you know, it kind of ties into chess in a way where it's like, you know, this is why it's, it's really cool. What you're doing is that, you know, it gives people an opportunity with a low barrier of entry to, you know, really expand on what they know, uh, you know, it gives them an outlet for their creative passions and also like their ability to, you know, focus on focus and concentration, like you mentioned, which is a skill that's probably, you know, I'd say in the modern world, uh, harder to come by than ever. So it's, you know, really cool. And I think it's something that, you know, especially with what you do with kids is like, you know, phenomenal to me because it's, it's, uh, it can have such a lasting impact. It has immeasurable impact, you know, especially when we look like we talked about, you know, 20 years down the road, what will, uh, you know, the people, the, the chess masters 20 years from now, what will their inspiration be? What will be the, the things that led them to that place? And I'm sure a lot of it will have to do with sort of the current state of things, possibly this pandemic, possibly, uh, some of the media that we've talked about, like the queen's gambit and overall it just, you know, provides a really, really, it's, I, I think chess is like, you know, really due for, uh, really reemergence due for this boom. And I think, uh, you know, it's, it's really interesting to see the work that you're doing on the cutting edge of it. Thank you so much. Yeah. I'm excited too. It's a, it's a crazy, but exciting time, certainly for chess for many endeavors. It's mostly just bad. Um, chess is unusual in that we've actually had a lot of resurgence during these times as it's a solace for people. But uh, yeah, I think that, um, you know, we still have to obviously keep in mind that, you know, so many people's lives have been ruined. So it's a solace, but it's also just a very difficult time all around. Absolutely. Well, I hope it provides comfort and solace for many people. And, um, and I appreciate your work and, and, you know, encouraging more people to get involved because I think uh, it's something that if they, didn't have that opportunity, they might miss out on that. Exactly. Yeah. That's what we need. We need there to be all these olive branches for people where they can get into different things that they might be good at, even if they didn't pick it up when they were super young or from their parents. And I hope that's what I'm providing in chess. And I know a lot of other people are providing similar things in their lives. And I think the more that you can do, the more that you can make this time easier for people as they can maybe look back on it and not think about, only the devastation and, you know, the person that they might know that died of COVID, but also about a time in their life where they developed a passion that stayed with them forever. Absolutely. We can, uh, I, I hope so as well. Um, tell me, Jennifer, where, where would you like people to find you online? Where, where do you like to point people to? Well, I have a website, jennifershahadi.com and I have, um, my Instagram and my, my Twitter accounts at Jen Shahadi keep, pretty well updated. And yeah, that, those are good ways to get in touch with me. And how about your, uh, if they want to find your events, they can find it on your website or the trainings. 
oh yeah, well the women's, the women's events and the women's stuff, probably it's still best. Like if you go to my social media, I'll update you in new ones. You can also go to uschesswomen.org to find out more about like everything that we do. And you can email me at jshahadi at uschess.org if you kind of like want to get on one of those lists, either for women's events or for girls events. And of course, you can find my podcasts, Ladies Night and the Poker Grid everywhere, you know, Apple, the whole spiel. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Love it. Uh, well, I hope you, uh, I, I wish you the best of luck in this new year. I hope you take advantage of all the opportunities that, you know, this current situation provides for us. And, uh, you know, I, I truly do appreciate the work that you do. I think it's got a large impact that, you know, we're seeing today and I think we'll see even more so in the future. So thank you for that. Yes. Thank you so much. What a great podcast. I really enjoyed it, Patrick. Thank you, Jennifer. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please Help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.